everyone. Good to see you all. Quite the scrumptious breakfast. A big thank you to Zev Pensack and Penny Zimmerman, who are both not here, so thank you. Anyway, uh, thank you. Yeah, we could clap for them. And thank you to all, many, many of you. I, I, I lost track, but I saw many, many of you running around, helping out. I uh, really appreciate that. Um, so we... Uh, we have an Israel, uh, an Israel committee, and in September, I guess it was maybe in August, we got together and talked about what we want to focus on in terms of our connection to Israel this year. Uh, what could it possibly be? And, you know, we're struggling. How could we connect people to Israel in a more meaningful way? And ultimately, we came up with Ethiopian Jewry, and we had grand plans of doing a whole m- number of programs around Ethiopian Jewry. Of course, as we know, October 7th happened, and our connection to Israel was, un- you know, strengthened quite naturally and quite strongly strongly in and of itself, and really we've been completely focused. We have not lost sight of Israel. That said, that said, we are, uh, we have some time this morning, and it's really inspiring to see so many people here, and uh, we thought it would be a good opportunity to, I would even say, lighten things up a little bit, learn a little bit about some fascinating Jewish history um, and some fascinating halacha as well, uh, relating to Ethiopian Jewry, and as we'll see, there are a number of interesting connections between what we're going to be studying and some of what is happening around us in Israel uh, right now. So let's jump in. We're going to learn a little bit of history, a little bit of halacha. Feel free to interject with any questions, comments, and uh, I'll, I'll take as many as I can. And we'll, 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 we'll hopefully learn a little bit, something, something new or some, a few new things today, this morning. So... The earliest, we'll start with the earliest rabbinic sources. This is a a Jewish class after all. Before we get to the history, I want to focus on this from a rabbinic perspective, uh, a Jewish perspective. And the earliest sources that we speak about that discuss what we'll call Ethiopian Jewry is an interesting figure by the name of Eldad Hadani. Eldad is a name that we're somewhat familiar with. It's a biblical name. Hadani meaning the one of Dan. Dan, as we know, is one of the tribes. So who is this individual? He's an individual who was dark, not clear if he was uh, much darker than others or he was black, it's not so clear. One way or another, he was a traveler who wrote about his traveling, which was somewhat norm. There's a whole genre of literature of people writing about their travels. And I wrote over here his escapades because he has these fascinating tales of being captured, being taken captive, uh, some of the first by, by cannibals. Uh, he and a friend, his friend was eaten because his friend was uh, much larger than him, and they put him in a pit to go fatten him up, so to speak. And then uh, the people, the cannibals who captured him, were attacked by another group of people, a group of Jews, he says, uh, from the tribe, I believe, of Menashe, and ultimately they saved him. Back in this whole wild story, ultimately he makes his way to uh, some of the European uh, major communities, and while he's there, he describes for them his knowledge from the Africas of different tribes that are living there. And he describes how the tribe of Manasseh is living like this, and the tribe of, uh, you know, this, uh, Reuven is living like this. And he describes his own tribe, the tribe of Dan. He describes the children. He says there's one family which lives apart, and they are, anyone know? The Bnei Moshe. He says the children of Moshe, they are living completely apart beyond a river that becomes quite famous and you, we have a lot of literature about, uh, and that is the Sambation River. This river which shoots out rocks that is impossible to traverse. And anyway, he describes all these fantastical tales, um, ultimately claiming that he is from the tribe of Dan. He describes many of their practices which were almost identical to our practices as we know it. Um, there were a couple of discrepancies, but most of them were, were, were quite minute. They were not significant discrepancies, but there were some. And many of the rabbinic leaders of the day did accept what he said 
at face value. Okay, this was, you know, you'll, you'll read many books of the time. This was, this was you know, there's no way of, uh, you know, uh, double-checking or, uh, you know, any fact-checking any of the comments that were made by these travelers. This was common. We have some, you know, in, in, you know there's a number of these books. So the, the Gaon, the, this was known as the Gaonic period. The main Gaon of the time was a man by the name of Rabbi Tzemach ben Chaim. He accepts what uh, Eldar Hadani says at face value. There are others who came along a little bit later, such as the Ibn Ezra, the famous Ibn Ezra, uh, the Maharag, Maharam of Ratan, these are two leading uh, scholars, one in, in Western Europe, one in Eastern Europe, who questioned the validity. But the truth is, it made no difference. This is basically, okay, this guy Eldad shows up. He tells us these fantastical tales. Who cares? It doesn't, for, at, at the time, he writes this book. This book makes its way into, you know, many libraries and many Jewish libraries. And it doesn't really have, it tells about the lost 10 tribes. And it's nice, it's interesting. It doesn't really have too many ramifications. When does it start having ramifications? A few hundred years later in the time of the Radvaz. Okay, so the Radvaz lives in, mostly in Spain. He travels at the end of his life to Tzvat. His name is Rabbi David ben Zimra, leading scholar, leading Kabbalist. And uh, he has a number of um, hundreds, I forget exactly the number, but hundreds of halachic rulings about many, many, many different topics. His writings are incorporated in all the main Jewish literature. And in one of, one of the questions that was posed during this time was a question about slavery. Now, let's keep in mind, slavery was quite common during that time. There were quite a few wars and a lot of, a lot of you know, and, and a lot of slave purchasing that was taking place. And there was a question about the purchase of some slaves of some people who claimed to be Jewish. Now, if you go ahead and you purchase someone who is Jewish, then you didn't purchase a slave. What you did was pidyon shvuyim. You redeemed a slave. Right? You know, we don't, there, there's a book that recently came out that spoke about um, the extent of Jews being on the slave market, especially after the Crusades. Uh, you know, so many, we, we you know, our, our knowledge of the Crusades oftentimes comes through Tisha B'Av. We read some of the, the poems that are written. They describe the destruction of the communities. We don't focus so much on the aftermath of those communities, but the aftermath was just as bad, if not worse. Uh, the amount of, of especially young women who were abducted and sold as slaves and et cetera, et cetera, um, and describing the, what, what happened to them, uh, it was quite significant. So, so there was the, the, the notion of redeeming captives was something which was very, very common in the not-so-ancient world. Okay, that was very, very common. And there's a question that came up about these individuals who were known as Kushites. Okay, they were black, and they were coming from the land of Kush, Okay, let's read it together. Here is a, here is a quote from the Radvaz. He says, Once there was a Kushite woman uh, from the land of Kush, otherwise known as Habash, Habash, which is Ethiopia, who was taken prisoner along with her two sons, and she was bought by one Ruvain, meaning a Jew bought her. We asked her, okay, what her status was. And she answered that she had been married, and these were her sons by her husband, whose name was so-and-so, and, and uh, their son was so-and-so. She said that the enemy came and killed all the people who had been in the synagogue, and the women they took captive. The obligation is upon all of Israel to redeem them. Right? So they were describing a group of people who had a synagogue. They had a show in Ethiopia. Right? And he's saying they're Jews. Why are they Jews? Here's the next line. Those Jews who came from the land of Cush are without a doubt from the tribe of Dan. Where is he getting this from? Swallow. Eldad Hadani, right? He's getting this from the, the, the source that we read from a few hundred years before that of this man, Eldad Hadani, who says that in Ethiopia, there were Jews. We are Jews from the tribe of Dan. And since they, now, now he has to, fine. So first of all, he says they're Jews. Now, already in the time, the 15th and 16th century, there is a problem. And this problem we're going to come and revisit a couple of times. And that is that when they started dis- 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 discussing things with these people that came from Ethiopia, these people who claimed to be from the tribe of Dan, their practices, whereas Eldad's practices were quite similar 
to those of the Jews in, you know, in, in, in Babylon at the time, etc. The Jews from Cush, the Jews from Ethiopia, their practices were quite different, okay? Um, many rabbinic laws were not practiced. So he has to address that because that was obviously a question. You know, if they were, if a person shows up and they're knowledgeable and everything and they come with their talis and their tefillin, they're lighting Shabbos candles, etc., etc., okay, we don't have reason to be suspect of their Jewish lineage. But if these people show up and they don't know a lot about, you know, they, they, they have some laws but not others, that's strange. So says the Radvaz, and since they did not have in their midst sages who are masters of the tradition, they clung to a simple meaning of the scriptures. They did not have leaders of their community. And as we'll see, even Ethiopian Jew, you know, the Ethiopian, uh, we'll call them Ethiopian Jews for now, they, they, they acknowledge that until around that time, there weren't really established leaders of their community. So he says, if they had been taught, however, they would not be irreverent towards the words of the sages. So their status is comparable to a Jewish infant taken captive by non-Jews. Okay, th- th- that line is a very important line. There is a notion in halacha called a tinok shenishba. A tinok shenishba means a child who is taken captive. Why, that, why is that term relevant? Because there is a notion in halacha that if someone rejects Jewish law, then for some halachos we treat them, even if they're born as a Jew, for some laws we treat them as a non-Jew. For some laws in terms of their validity as a, as a witness, for example, we'll treat that person if a person rejects Jewish law. But if they are a tinok shenishba, if they are someone who was, uh, literally means they were taken captive as a young child, they had no way, of, it wasn't a conscious choice to reject Judaism. They just didn't know better, right? So for those people, uh, we treat them in a much more lenient fashion and their status is, so to speak, elevated. Even if they're, you know, serving idols or whatever, we treat them in a much more compassionate tone because of the fact that it's not a conscious rejection of Judaism, okay? So therefore he says, they are a tinok shenishba, okay? So he says, basically, even though they don't keep a lot of the oral law, they just didn't know better. They didn't have rabbis leading them and that's why, okay? And even if you say the matter is in doubt, it is a command. If you say you don't agree with everything I'm saying, he says it's a commandment to redeem them. He says, even if it's a suffix, even if it's a doubt, a doubt is not enough of a reason for us not to go ahead and do everything we can to save these people who might indeed be Jewish, okay? But the bottom line is the Radvaz believes that they are completely, completely Jewish. They are from the tribe of Dan. They just didn't have leaders uh, educating them and therefore some of their practices, some of the practices that we're accustomed to fell off in their community. So far, so good. Yeah? How's breakfast? Good too. Okay. Fantastic. Okay. So those are some of the earliest sources. We'll come back and discuss, uh, you know, some of the halacha uh, soon, but these are the earlier sources you see that discuss uh, the Ethiopian Jews. Was that a question, Michael? The, uh, you said something about the B'nai Moshe. Mm-hmm. Isn't there a group of people, I, I don't want to say many Jews, in India? B'nai Menashe. Oh, Menashe. That's right. That's right. That's right. Next week, we're talking about... No, just kidding. Okay. Um, okay. So let's see. Where, where, where does this community actually come from? So we know that Eldad claims they come from Dun. However, there are even Ethiopian sources that speak about a community that uh, goes way, way back. There's something called the Kebra. I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly. Kebra Nagast. Um, and that is a 14th century uh, work of literature in Ethiopia. Not a, Jew, not a Jewish piece of literature, but it actually describes the development of Ethiopia as a country. And it describes a union between the Queen of Sheba and King Solomon. Now, in Tanakh, 
in, in, in the book of Malachim, we just describe a visit by the Queen of Sheba to King Solomon and a conversation they have, okay? So you have some corroboration about some, some connection between the two. But in our sources, there's no mention of a union between them. Whereas in this Ethiopian source, again, not a source that's connected to Ethiopian Jews, but this you know, secular, you know, we'll call it a, a nationalistic source uh, that describes the development of the, the communities there, describes a union between the Queen of Sheba and, um, and King Solomon, Shlomo HaMelech, and they have a child who is uh, called Menelik I, okay? And so different versions, but either Menelik I's offsprings or that with that union, many Jews started coming to that region, okay? Which is not, um, you know, whether they had a union or not, whether they had this, whether this child Menelik actually comes from King Solomon, the notion that there is trade between them is not so shocking. Um, I was just gifted this uh, delicious looking Ethiopian uh, coffee uh, bag over here. Thank you very much. Uh, and, 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 you know, there's a lot of trade with Ethiopia back in the day. Ethiopia kind of fell off a lot of the trade. Uh, the region, uh, you know, that area in some ways, you know, started to decline significantly. Uh, but certainly historically, it was a major trade center. Whether it was, it wasn't, I don't think they had coffee, they were doing coffee back then, but, uh, but they were, it was a major trade route. So the fact that there were Jews traveling uh, during a time of Jewish prosperity, under the reign of King Solomon, as, as uh, King Solomon consolidates the, the, the you know, the Israelite, Israelite kingdom, to, to assume that there's a lot of travel during the time and some people stay behind, that's, that's uh, not a crazy assumption, okay? So, yeah. Sorry? The baby, correct. The baby, according, right. If you say it's just the offspring, right, as Esther's pointing out, the children would not be Jewish. And therefore, some say, yeah, they had a child. The child isn't Jewish, but it created, you know, a pathway and more favor, favorable, uh, you know, conditions for Jews to start traveling there. And I keep on using the word Jews. I know that's a little anachronistic uh, at that era, um, or even to describe these people as Jews, uh, because Jews comes from the word Judean, from the tribe of Yehuda. Uh, but I'm just using that term just because that's a term we're familiar with. So I apologize ahead of time for... Um, I'm, I'm incorrect, but I'm just doing it for the sake of just speaking smoothly. Okay, um, so let's just focus on, this, focus on this community from a historic perspective, what we do know. We do know that there, were de- there was definitely a community of people who practiced Judaism in that region. And the fourth century, um, Ethiopia, like much of the region, was taken over by Christianity. Uh, the, the, as, as we could imagine, as we know, uh, that led to a significant amount of persecution and that caused the, the community that was practicing Judaism to flee to the mountains. And they ultimately received a name of people who were the fleers, the exiles. And the term that is used is either ge'ez or falasha. Okay, falasha is a term that nowadays has like a negative connotation. You cannot use that term outside of like a setting like this. And it has a, it, it's, 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 a, it's a derogatory term. But the actual meaning of the term is someone who is in exile. And the original Jewish community that lived in that region was forced into exile due to Christian persecution. We don't hear too much about them for a little while. In the 10th century, there is a rebellion of a number of people fighting back against the Christian rulers and the Jewish communities, again, using that term, but the communities from the mountains, those people who are practicing Judaism, join with the rebellion against the Christian rulers. They are successful. And what, then there is a, a, we'll call it a, we don't know if this as, as a fact, but there is a tradition that there was an independent Jewish kingdom 
for 40 years under an individual by the name of Judith, Queen Yehudit, who ruled over that region. Historians are, are not sold on this idea, but again, we, this history from that era is a little bit spotty, but there is this tradition that they were so successful in overthrowing their Christian rulers that they're able to have their own independent kingdom for quite a while. Okay, so you have these, first of all, just keep in mind, um, you know, during Jewish history, there are not too many uh, um, examples of Jews fighting back. You know, you think about that era in, I don't know, in Europe uh, during that time in, in Eastern Europe, right? The, the stories are the Jews just being persecuted. Their stories involve Jews who are taking up arms and fighting back against their Christian overlords and basically pushing back. And it's, it's rare. It's rare. You have a couple of examples of this, uh, but by this, I, I think one of the later examples of Jews fighting back, uh, you know, for 2,000 years is one of the rare examples of a tradition where Jews are, are, are taking up arms to fight against those who are persecuting them, okay? Um, Okay, so let's move fast forward to the 15th century. They are persecuted severely. Okay, Christians are back in rule at this point, and are and I, there is a, a ruler. I'm blanking on his name now, but his his nickname was the the what was it? It was like the hater of the Jews. When that's your nickname, uh, not only by Jews, you know you're in trouble, right? Like this was his this was his nickname, and I probably shouldn't be laughing, but uh, but basically they they it was quite a terrible time. And interestingly enough. Really something you see in this week's Parsha, right? The Rashi famously says um, that Kasher Yanu Osam, just as the Egyptians afflicted them, Cain Yirbu, they, they increased, right? There was this uh, funny thing that in as much as the Egyptians caused the Jews to suffer, our sages teach us that while that was happening simultaneously, or not almost in a response, God says, you're trying to push down the Jews, the Jews are going to actually grow. And so while they're being persecuted in Egypt, they, they grow substantially. Similarly over here, an interesting thing happened. While that persecution was taking place, it actually had the opposite effect. Although many Jews died in the process, it also, they became martyrs. And people, you know, in some eras like martyrs. Martyrs are actually, there's something attractive to martyrs. And it's during that era specifically that we find a development of like a monastic uh, sect from within this group of people who are like become like monks. This is their like what we'll call their rabbis. And they start, they, 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 they move off to like these, uh, you know, mountaintops and they start studying their, their sources much more in depth and they become the leaders. And actually the, the, this group becomes in some way more attractive to some because of the persecution that they're dealing with. People say, wow, this is something special, whatever the case may be, but it actually in some ways grows uh, in their movements, which causes a bit of an issue, but we don't know exactly to what extent they grow, but it seems like they grow in popularity during that point. We'll come back to that. That might cause uh, problems or might cause solutions, uh, but we'll, we'll come back. This history is going to be relevant to some of the halachic elements. Okay, any questions so far? Still, ro- yes? Is this monastic set comparable to the Essenes? Um, in, in some ways, um, but we don't find, they don't have similar practices to the Essenes. Uh, they're similar in the sense that, uh, like the Essenes, they don't really have an oral law. And uh, the Kesim, or the, they have another term that they use as well, um, they're similar in that respect. But uh, yeah, I guess it's similar in the sense they're both monastic. You'll, you'll see like pictures. It's always interesting to see the, the art that they have of the, uh, from the time. And, uh, you know, when they have pictures of Moshe for, in Ethiopian Jewry, you'll find like old pictures of Moshe, biblical figures. They're dressed, of course, like 
like themselves, like the, like the monks, you know, and that's the same way, like when I was growing up, my, my Hasidish rabbi used to give us partial sheets to color in, and Moshe, you know, Avram Avinu had a strimal, right, because my Rebbe was Hasidish, so my, you know, but, um, yeah, I'm sure that was accurate, uh, it's a cult, but anyway, so, um, fine, similar type of thing. Okay, um, in the 16th century, in the 16th century, um, the rulers are much more tolerant, this is seen as like, a, almost like a time of renaissance, it's a time of, of great growth, um, and on the one hand, that's great, less persecution, but as we know what happens, the same thing happens in Europe. As they are more allowed to integrate more into society, what happens to their practices? They become watered down, right? We know this happened in Europe, you know, with uh, the Enlightenment and, and, and referee. All these things were great on the one hand because we're being, you know, it's nice to not be killed so much. At the same time, you know, by being separate, it allowed us to maintain our way of life and maintain our language. So the same around the same era that they start in allowing Ethiopian, again, Jews, we'll call them, to integrate into the community much more, and many of them assume great positions of power. It's around the same time that Hebrew drops off. Okay, so we basically find them not speaking Hebrew. They have another language, uh, which they call Ge'ez, okay? And that's the language that they speak in. That's the language they write in. But ba- almost no one there is knowledgeable in Hebrew at that point, okay? Um, so I think they had, I think things were translated into Ge'ez, and I believe they read, um, they, 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 they read it. I don't know if they had a scroll. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Okay. Um, a fascinating little episode, which, which also is going to play a, a little bit of a role, and that is in 1862, a monk, they still had some leaders, led them, led a huge delegation, forget thousands of people, to the Red Sea. He was obviously a very charismatic individual, and he led them to the Red Sea with a promise that the sea was going to split and they were going to return the Holy Lands. They're going to return to Israel. So they start traveling. Unfortunately, um, it was a very, very difficult um, uh, journey. And thousands, you know, many, many of the people died on the way. Of course, the sea did not split. And it was an abject failure. And what that did was in some ways reinforced to the people that they have no chance of ever returning to Israel. Right? In other words, they kept this dream of the Holy Land alive, as we'll see. There was, it was very much a part of their culture, a part of the way they thought. Um, and so all of a sudden you have this individual who is this charismatic person, this like quasi-messianic figure is going to lead them. It fails. So what does that usually do? That makes like that, 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 that sets you back, right? When you're like after Shabtai Tzvi, you know, if you were, you said the word Mashiach, they'd be, you can't, you know, like nowadays, and you know, people finish their speeches, Mashiach will come, you couldn't do that. I remember even after, like, I remember, not, you know, not that long ago, the whole, you know, Chabad controversy, you know, for a while, you know, you couldn't say, you couldn't, if you finish that way, people look at you a little suspiciously, you know, are you, you know, do you believe the Rebbe is alive? Whatever it was, you know, but basically, so it, it caused a setback on their, on their thought process of, is it even possible for us to return to Zion, to return to Eretz Yisrael or not, okay? Uh, one, more, um, one more era that we're going to focus on, and that is the uh, end of the, ni- you know, the er- late 19th, early 20th century. Uh, you'll find a lot of literature. There's an explosion of, 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 of a couple of things that are happening at the same time. First of all, there are missionaries being sent to Ethiopia in order to convert this community, okay? Not just them. There are other sects there that were not Christian, and so the missionaries are on... You know, they're, they're sending people to Ethiopia and to other places of that force, of, of, that, of that form. And, uh, and at the same time, you have, sorry, Christian. Christian missionaries. I'm sorry, I wasn't clear. Yeah, I'm sorry. Christian missionaries, sending them there to convert to Christianity. Um, Jews get wind of this. Um, Rav Hildesheimer, um, the Malbim, many, many prominent Jews get wind of this and start sending like counter groups to go ensure that they hold on to their faith. In other words, and the assumption there is, they believe that this group was full-fledged Jews, and they wanted to save them, right? Imagine, you know, you know, there was a, a vulnerable community that was being, uh, being infiltrated by, by missionaries. 
It's our responsibility to, to, to prevent it, right? So basically there was like this counter movement to go try to instill within them Jewish values and to prevent the missionaries. Um, and so that's, that's a lot of tension going on during the, again, late 19th, early 20th century uh, and, and beyond, 19th and 20th century. And in addition, there is a community which we don't talk about too often uh, and still exists to this day, and that is the Karaites. Who are the Karaites? Karaites are a group of Jews that at one point were extremely, extremely popular within uh, Jewish ranks, um, but nowadays are, are quite small. You can still in Yushalayim, you can still visit the, the Karaites. Um, they have a small community, relatively speaking. Um, the Karaites are those who reject the oral law, right? They believe in the written law. Um, they, so, for example, the famous example is the Karaites uh, do not have uh, cholent, right? Cholent is a protest food. Cholent was uh, because that, why don't they have cholent? Because they believe when the Torah says, Lusivaro esh mosh you shouldn't have a fire on in your home. That means not only can you not ignite a fire, but a fire cannot be on. So they sit in the dark. They do not have, if you have a pre lit fire, or in our modern terms, a plugged in crock pot or whatever, that would be forbidden because that means a fire is on. In your homes, right? So uh, the, the riff, one of the you know, earliest sources to talk about Cholent, says the reason we have Cholent on Shabbos is to protest, is to, you know, it's a protest food. It tastes good too, I think. But basically it's meant to counter them. It's a, it's a mitzvah to do it. Why? Not just because it tastes good. To show them that we believe that you're allowed to have a hot food on on Shabbos, right? It's a pretty, a pretty amazing thing. Um, so it puts a little bit more meaning, I hope, to, to when you eat Cholent, that it really was done as a way of, it's our way of affirming our belief in the oral law. Okay? Uh, anyway, um, so, you know, there, there was a need to, pro- you have to keep in mind, when you protest someone, you know, if, if, if there's like one, you know, uh, you know, person who's doing something, that's not like, you don't have to counter them. The Karaites were an influential and powerful, wealthy com- community uh, for many, many years, uh, you know, early Jewish history, um, and therefore there was a need to counter them, to protest against them, right? Nowadays, many of us don't even know their pro- the Karaites still exist, because they're just, it's so negligible, it's so, so small. Um, Anyway, the Karaites are excited about when they hear about these Ethiopian people. Why? Because, as we'll see, so many of the laws that they have don't seem to incorporate the oral law, right? So that would give their... What's the fight between the Karaites? Who has authentic Judaism, right? If you're sitting in this room and you uh, eat cholent, uh, then you believe that, uh, that, that our tradition is correct, right? Uh, the Karaites felt that we're wrong. The Karaites said that, no, there was never an oral law. There was no such thing ever that ever took place, okay? We could debate what developed later, what developed earlier. They said there was no oral law. There was the written law, and that's all we have. And this is a very, very old debate. Uh, it had different names, this movement. It had different leaders, but ultimately becomes known as the Karaite movement. They're excited because here are a bunch of Jews, or people who claim to be Jews, who basically are rejecting the oral law, seems to give credence to them. And now they have allies. Look, let's bring them into our ranks. Now we have fellow Karaites. Yes? He taught the written law. He taught the written law. The written law. No explanation. Uh, by definition, you know, this is you're, you're touching upon Hillel, uh, Hillel's arguments, right? Hillel, uh, I'll, very briefly, we're not going to get into charitism right now, or char- yeah. Um, but uh, Hillel famously, you know, this individual said he wanted to convert to Judaism, only the written law and no tradition. So the person said, so Hillel, of course, Hillel, the famous Tana says, no problem. He says, come the first day, and he teaches him. This is an Aleph, Aleph. This is a Bez, Bez, Gimel, Gimel, Dal, Dal, fine, great. Next day, he comes back, he says, this letter, that's a tough. He said, yesterday he said it was Aleph, too bad. This is a Bez, it's a, it's a Resh. He says, yesterday he said it was a Bez. And they're going back and forth, what's going on? He says, you want me to, he says, you want to have a written law without an oral tradition? It doesn't exist. 
How do you even know a letter has a connotation? Only by, or by everything, by de- everything has commentary, right? So by definition, even the cow rights have to have some level of oral law. And that, that was the argument he was making, again, you know, for, for in defense of the oral law. But, okay, it's a longer discussion. Okay, fine. Um, one little fascinating little episode. There was an individual, the Malbim and other sent, this man by the name of Professor Yosef Alevi. Um, and he just, we'll read this together. He sent um, to verify the rumor and to meet them. And we'll just read. He basically comes in front of them. And he, and he stands for, we'll just read. We're on the second page. I'm just going to start in the middle of that fourth paragraph. This is the, he, he writes his, his conversation with them. He says, You should know, dear brothers, that I'm also a Falashi. I'm one of you. I believe in no other God but the one God himself. My religion is not other but the heritage of the Jewish people from Mount Sinai. Okay, so the masses called out together. You are, it should be a question mark, you are a falashi? A falashi with white skin? Right? You are mocking us. Who ever heard such a thing? Are there white falashas under the sun? In other words, they said, a Jew to believe, they didn't believe that there was someone, right? Keep in mind, we live in a, what, you know, uh, the, the term is coined, a flat world. We're all interconnected. We all know everything's, they, they never had contact or serious contact with other Jews, right? And they thought, we are the only ones who are connected to Moshe. Right? We are the ones. There are no other. A white, a white Jew, a white, again, Falash over here is not, doesn't mean black. Falash in this context meant someone who is an observer of the Torah. They didn't believe him. They didn't believe him. Right? I tried to tell them and to pledge my faith that all Falashas, the Falashas in Jerusalem and other countries of the world were white and that their skin was no different from that of other peoples among whom they lived. Okay, my mention of the word Jerusalem, which I uttered coincidentally, immediately annulled any doubt the Falashas may have had regarding my words. Like lightning in the dark of night, the word Jerusalem lit up their eyes and hearts of my lost brothers. With eyes full of tears, they cried, Ah, you have you visited Jerusalem, the holy blessed city? Have you seen the beautiful Mount Zion with your own eyes and our own magnificently and our magnificently built temple, the admired and exalted palace in which the God of Israel loves to dwell in honor within? Ah, have you uh, perhaps seen with your own eyes the grave of our foremother, Rachel? Have you been in Bethlehem and the city of Hebron, where our holy forefathers are buried? In other words, it took a while, but finally he persuaded them, and there they're awakened to the notion of Yushalayim, to Eretz Yisrael, that, that's what awakened their spirits. But just that notion, you know, and, and of course, uh, many of us, uh, you know, maybe, you know, depends, you know, when you were born, when you started hearing about Ethiopian Jews, maybe you first had skepticism. What? There are Jews who are not white, right? Uh, you know, and so it, it's, we, 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 we're just, you know, uh, products of our, of our upbringing, and we just assume uh, we're accustomed to what we know, but they believed that they were the only Jews, and the notion of a white Jew made no sense. In truth, in truth, Truth, they probably look a lot more like our ancestors than we do. Uh, we're probably, you know, I don't know. Our ancestors came from like the Middle East. They're definitely darker than, than me. Um, you know, there, there's no question about it. So uh, anyway, okay. Yes, we'll come back to that. Yes, we'll come back to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, they have no conne- they have no real connection to those around them. Okay, so let's now get a little bit more halachic. This is a little bit of a historical overview. Let's get a little bit more halachic, and we'll get into some of the halachic questions. So, a couple of practices that the that the again, uh, I'm going to use that term with an apology just to make it simple. But the falashas that's the term that's used in literature. Again, I do, it's not a term to be used outside of uh, you know academic or you know these types of discussions. It does it, it's it's used as a as a, in a negative context often. So, some of the practices that they started Shabbos at noon. That would be stressful, wouldn't it? They started Shabbos at noon and it finished Saturday night, so much longer Shabbos. And like the Karaites, no fires were lit at all. So they had colds, you know, in the dark, colds. You'd understand a little bit why they'd start at noon, by the way, because if you're starting at night like we do and you don't have lights, that's a problem. So maybe pragmatically, it made sense to start a little bit earlier so they could eat. Um, it's a theory, right? Keep in mind, it's not as big of a deal not to have like a fire raging in your in Ethiopia where it's a lot hotter. Uh, but, you know, anyway, one way or another, this was their practice. Kashras, they did have laws of slaughtering. They light Shabbos 
They did not light Shabbos candles. Yeah, that's a big one. Um, they, they had laws of slaughtering. Um, keep in mind, where do Shabbos candles come from? That is a rabbinic law, right? Um, okay, um, they had laws of slaughtering, however, and they did not eat cow's milk with cow's meat, but they would eat cow's milk with goat's meat, with a different animal. Why? Because, as we all know, they, they read it much more literally. There's a concern of eating an animal, with, the, the milk, with its own kid, right? So if it's two separate animals, there's no concern. So they had some level of interpretation, right? It wasn't literal, literal, the mother and the child, but it wasn't, uh, you know, not, not to the same degree that we do. They obviously didn't have Hanukkah or Purim. That would make no sense. They didn't, have, they didn't know about the Hanukkah story or know about the Purim story. No shofar in Rosh Hashanah, um, which again, that's, uh, it, it's, we consider it a biblical law, but it's not said so explicitly. It's uh, whatever, it, you know, we, we, without getting into, there's a mention of Tzkiah shofar, but not, not the way that we do it. Um, tefillin, they did not practice wearing tefillin. Okay, there is a tradition amongst the Ethiopians that they um, that uh, that they that they were prohibited from wearing tefillin by one of the persecutors, and therefore it eventually the practice eventually stopped. We do know historically there were times in Jewish history where tefillin wearing kind of fell off a little bit, which is kind of shocking to believe. Uh, you could you could glean that a little bit from the Talmud. The Talmud has some of the strongest words to say about someone who does not wear tefillin. Right? Whenever you see that, you have to read between the lines. Right? Why are they saying that? They're saying that in response. They don't say that to something. If everyone is uh, you know, doing something, they don't, there's no need to be so uh, fierce about it. But if they say, and they have very, very strong terminology about people who don't wear tefillin, um, that is presumably because there were times when tefillin wearing was just not as common. Okay? They have, so those are things they don't do. There is one thing they do, uh, which has now actually become quite popular, and that is Sigid. Sigid is a, I think I'm pronouncing it correctly, Sigd, Sigd. Okay, no, no, okay, thank you. Uh, Sigd, so it's become quite popular in Israel. It's a holiday, um, a form, it's a whole bunch of celebrations that are celebrated by Ethiopian uh, Jews as a reminder of the return to, of the dream of returning to Zion, of returning to, to Israel. It's a holiday that we don't have on, you know, our calendar, but has become in the past few years, uh, you know, there's this embrace of multiculturalism. It's become much more popular in Israel. They recently had a celebration, uh, you know, here at the JCC. Uh, they had, like, uh, they observed it. They had a speaker come in. Uh, who she herself was from, uh, from this community to speak about her, her experiences. Okay. Okay, one way or another, there is a fascinating book, which I'm not going to get into. If you turn the page, by uh, a, a, a person by the name of Rabbi Sharon Shalom uh, wrote a fascinating book. It's, it's, uh, if you want to read the book, I would just encourage you to read the review as well. The review is quite harsh because uh, the book is an attempt to try to reconcile their way of law and say it more or less lines up, not with the Babylonian Talmud, but the Jerusalem Talmud. Um, it's, it's, again, uh, whatever. It's not the time and place, but I, I just, I, it's a well-known book for those who are interested about this community, and I would just encourage you to read the review. Uh, there are some serious questions about uh, some of the assumptions made by the author. The author's intentions are wonderful. The author's intentions are to try to integrate the Ethiopian community with their practices that are, do not align with our practices and try to bridge the gap Many the the criticism the the review is harsh because it basically says nothing doing you're not you you didn't bridge the gap you 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 know nice try but also you know like uh, basically saying it's 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 not it's not a good enough justification. In other words, there, there's an attempt to try to show how some of these customs are indeed in line with, with our tradition, um, trying to, again, trying to, to bridge the gap. The review, and again, many review, this is just one, I just have one listed over here, um, whatever, it, 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 there's a lot of questions to, to, to some of the claims that are made in the book, uh, but it's an attempt, it's a, it's a noble attempt to try to show how that community could be more integrated with some of their very different, you know, for example, on Shabbos in their shoals, they, they pass around a tzedakah box. 
Why? Because there's a verse that speaks about um, don't show up to my temple empty-handed. Right, uh, you can't you can't be you can't be shown, seen in the temple empty-handed, which means that when a person comes to the base of Migdash on the Shalosh Regalim, Shalosh Regalim, you bring offerings. They interpret that to mean you can't go into a shul without charity. So if you go to uh, Ashdod or Beit Gatz where they have some Ethiopian uh, shuls, they'll pass around a pushka on Shabbos. Now you can imagine that being quite jarring. Uh, but okay, fine, that's rabbinic, whatever. Bottom line is uh, it's, it's uh, not, not for today. Today what I'm going to focus on um, is two halachic questions. Where there is what I consider the easy halachic question, although may, many would disagree, and then there's the more difficult halachic question, and then we'll wrap up. Okay? Everyone still with me? You're all doing great. Okay, fantastic. Okay, so the first question is, are they Jewish? Right, um, you know that we have the, this. This question was a major question because um, in the seventies, uh, in the early seventies, the Israeli government had the, in the the Jewish agency had an internal memo. It wasn't a private. It wasn't a, a secret memo. Internal memo saying we do not encourage Aliyah by the Falashas. We do not deem them to be Jewish. We do not encourage Aliyah. And basically, there were Jews who were trying, there were people from Ethiopia trying to make their way into Israel, but they were there because they accept them, but it was certainly something they were discouraging. They certainly weren't encouraging. And they came out with this in a more public fashion around 1973. Rabbi Vadi Yosef, who was the chief Sephardic rabbi, went ahead and wrote a response to what they wrote. And he wrote like this. He says, there could be no doubt that the authorities who declare them from among the tribe of Dan investigated and examined the evidence thoroughly and reached the conclusion on the basis of the most reliable testimony and evidence. So he says, we have the Radvaz, remember from the 16th century, who said this? He must have said this not just on Dan uh, Eldad Hadani. He must have done proper research. We could rely, meaning we rely on the Radvaz for many major decisions. He said, I'm going to assume that if he said these people are from, you know, are of Jewish uh, descent, he must have done his homework. There's no way he just relied on one fantastical tale. He must have done research. He says, I too, he says, have investigated and examined the matter thoroughly. After the leaders of the community approached me, and I have decided that in my humble opinion, the Falashas are Jews who must be saved from assimilation. We should promote their immigration to the land, educate them in the way of our holy Torah, and include them in the building of the holy land. Thus, uvishavu banim, ligvulam, the children shall return to their own border. He says this is a fulfillment of kibbutz galios, the return of those who... Um, were, you know, were, 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 were sent all over the, the, the world. But the Red Vaz was 400 years ago. Ah, good, 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 good. Good points. We'll come back to that. So Ravadia, so uh, we'll come, I'll, I'll repeat what he said in a moment. Basically, Ravadia says they are full-fledged Jews. It's worth noting that elsewhere, Ravadia Yosef says that there is this notion called, there's conversion, what we call gear, and there's something called gear lechumra. Gear lechumra means, uh, out of stringency, we make someone go through some of the steps of conversion. So we do that, all, it happens, comes up sometimes when there's a question about someone's uh, lineage or whatever, you know, sometimes people come from countries where we can't get absolute confirmation that they, you know, that they're really Jewish, but they're practicing Jews. We go through like a much more like minimally invasive, like a, a, a small process of conversion, you know, where they basically, it's like, it's it, the whole regular long process out the window. It's a very, very short thing. We call that gear l'chumra. So elsewhere, Ravad Yosef says that these Jews should go through gear l'chumra. Right? His more public statement was, they're full-fledged Jews. It seems like, if you'd ask him, he'd encourage people to do that, to, to have them go through the extra steps. 
in uh, Gush Etzion, where they had a number of Ethiopian uh, Jews, uh, you know, uh, join the yeshiva, the, he, the Rav Lichtenstein, who was the Rosh Yeshiva, would make them go through Gil Lechumra. It basically means going to the mikvah, they stating, we accept all of the Torah written and oral, um, and uh, for males, they would, they would do what we call a tifastam, just like take a drop of blood, uh, not, not a full-fledged circumcision, but basically like a drop of blood um, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a form of Gil Lechumra. So that was Rav Avad Yosef's approach. Was Kidim on reading? I'll come to some questions. Ramosha Feinstein disagreed. They did so privately, although nothing remains private. Um, it was published, published, uh, published publicly. He says, and he brings up the argument that Chaim just brought up. He says, it's difficult to rely on this. For first of all, it's not clear that the Radvaz knew well the reality regarding them. First of all, he says, I'm not so sure that the Radvaz did more research than relying on Eldad. Okay, and relying on Eldad, uh, it's questionable. Nor is it clear whether up until our time, their status has remained the same and not changed. He says, okay, even if we take the Radvaz at face value, he wrote this in the 16th century. We are, the, he was in the 20th century. Even if you say, okay, the Radvaz says it, we're going to accept it. What credibility, what, especially if you recall, there's a lot of tumultuous change during that time. There was assimilation that took place during that time. There was persecution that took place during that time. There were people who joined them during that time, right? So do we really know that Nothing changed at that time. We know things changed. So how could you rely? You know, we have a notion called chazaka, status quo. If, uh, you know, if you ask me, is my, you know, it's going to sound bizarre, but, but you know, uh, could, could I assume that, 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 that my wife is alive? The answer is, uh, you know, is my wife, you asked me, is my wife alive? I'd say, of course she is. Well, I didn't see, I didn't text her in the past hour or so, but I, there's a chazaka, the status quo. Since I saw her a little while ago, I could assume that's the case. But with time, a status quo changes, right? So how do you, so halakhically, you have a notion of status quo, but it only goes so far. You can't say, Ramosha says, hundred years that we still have the status quo? He says, regarding their Judaism, it is a suffix and must require them true conversion before we permit them to marry within the Jewish community. So Ramosha Feinstein says they would need full-fledged conversion. Nevertheless, even before their conversion, it is an act, and this is such an important paragraph, it is an act of priesthood, I mean, it's a mitzvah, to save them from being drawn into a non-Jewish creed and from danger. So he says, both in terms of religiously, we have an obligation to educate them, even though he doesn't believe they're Jews. And B, he says, certainly they're in danger. Keep in mind, back then there was a, lot, there was a civil war raging, and that was one of the reasons that there was a lot of discussion about saving them. He says, we have an obligation to save them. Why? As is the law for any Jew for Suffolk, Nefashos, Lahakel. He says, because it's a doubt. Now, this is a very um, creative explanation of Suffolk, Nefashos, Lahakel. We have a rule on Shabbos. If, let's say, a person has a deep cut on Shabbos, okay? So is a deep cut life-threatening? Usually not, but it could be. It could be. So you know what? I, I, you know, I remember there's a kid who, you, know, you, you call, whatever, you, you, you go to, you call it cell, you get in a car, you drive to the hospital, right? Chances are it's fine. But Suffolk, Nefashos, Lahakel, we have a rule that if there's even a doubt about someone's life being endangered, you're allowed to all the, most of the regular rules are waived, exception of the big three. So Ramosha finds, normally what that means is that if a person's life is potentially in danger, you're allowed to be, you know, we, we are, we're, we're very lenient. So here he's saying, he's, he's giving a bit of a creative leap on what that means. Over here, we're not sure if they are Jewish. But he's saying, since it's a doubt and they're in danger, we should, meaning usually you have someone whose status is a Jew, right? And you say, Suffolk, it's a doubt that maybe they're in danger. I have to go save them. Here, he's saying, well, it's a doubt that they're a Jew, but there's the, even though it's a doubt, but it's a doubt that relates to their, their safety. And therefore, we have to be stringent. We have to go ahead and do everything we can to save them. And therefore, Moshe Feinstein said, I don't believe they're Jewish, but there's a possibility they are. And therefore, we have to do everything we can to help them spiritually and physically. One should also know, he says, that even if the pra- in the practical application of the law, they are not Jews, since they think they are Jews and they sacrifice their lives for Judaism, we are obligated to save them. 
Fascinating. I, I, just a little, when I was in Israel, I, we heard from um, an individual, I'm blanking on his name now, Rabbi Slotsky. Rabbi Slotsky, uh, it's a, just a terrible story. He lost, lost two sons on October 7th. It's a longer story, but one of his, his role, in the, he had a role in the, in the army, the rabbi still does. Um, he, his job was to work with uh, converts within the army. Okay, so especially you have a lot of uh, Jews coming from Russia or people potentially Jewish coming from Russia. And his, and his job was to give them an education in order to get them fully converted um, while they're already serving the army. He says on October 7th, um, you know, so many, he lost a lot of people in this, in this uh, his, you know, the, these people who were part of his program lost their lives defending Jews on October 7th. So he says, you know, he, he turns to us, he said, just imagine, you know, so some of them survived. And he said, imagine those people who survived. They're going to come in front of the beaten. They're going to come in front of the courts. And they're going to say, they have a bunch of questions. Are you really committed to Judaism? Would you, you know? And he's like, it'd be a busha. It'd be embarrassing to even ask the question of these people. He said, like, I feel responsible to, like, expedite the process. Like, these people, they sacrifice themselves, right? They, they put themselves on the line to go, for, to go save a lot of the Jewish people. Like Ramosha is saying over here, they're... You know, as soon as they're ready, they are Jews. They, they have removed any shadow of a doubt that they are committed to being part of Am Yisrael, part of the Jewish nation. Okay, and that's a similar, and then that was, you know, his argument, he didn't mention Ramosha, but, but he was using that same argument that Ramosha made about the Ethiopian Jews. One way or another, thanks to Rav Avadia, um, the Israeli government changed their policy, which is pretty unique. Uh, they changed their policy, and they considered Ethiopian Jews to be full-fledged Jews. And if you look at this little chart over here, I'm sorry it's so small, uh, but if you look in 1970, so look in 1961 to 1971, there are 98, less than 100 uh, Ethiopian immigrants. In 1972 to 1979, 306, and then it opens up. 1980 to 1989, 16,000, 1999, then 14,000, 12,000 starts dropping off because there's not so many left there. Uh, but now 2010, 2013, you have 7,000. That is all a credit to uh, Rabbi Vadi Yosef. In truth, Rabbi Goren, who was the chief Ashkenazi rabbi of the army, whatever, he, he ended up uh, agreeing as well. Um, and of course, the most famous operation was the Operation Solomon. Uh, there's a movie we might see at some point uh, that, that goes into great detail. Unbelievable, unbelievable um, uh, rescue mission. Okay, so one way or another, there's this debate. Are they full-fledged Jews? Um, Rav Moshe says, no, they need to go through a proper conversion, but we need to save them. Ravad Yosef saying, they are full-fledged Jews, but maybe offline, he says, you need to have a gear l'chomer, they should go through the minimal amount of conversion. Yes? Was, was there a, um, a feeling among the uh, Ethiopian Jews that they didn't want to go, they felt they were Jewish and did not want to have to go through. Sure, sure, it's insulting. It's insulting. There are a lot of fascinating papers written about, you know, the identity crisis. Imagine, imagine we were to make Aliyah, all of us here, right? And we'd show up, and this happens to people all the time. And they're like, oh, you, you, you live in Baltimore? Yeah, you're not Jewish. I'm sorry. It's funny, but it's not funny, right? Imagine that would be crushing. What do you mean? I dedicated my whole life to this, right? How do they deal with that? Okay, it's a, it's a serious question. It's hard, meaning it's, it's responsibility on, on the community's part to, to, to help them because it's unfair that they have to go through such a, such a thing. But yeah, certainly there's an emotional... How is that? She's so optimistic. I don't know if it's been resolved. It's, it's, a, it's an ongoing challenge. It's an ongoing challenge in Israel. Uh, you know, there are communities which are better, and we'll come back to this. There are communities that are better at welcoming them, but they face a lot of discrimination. We'll come back to that. Yes? So that's a good question. So there, there is this question which we're going to come back to right now, which is, did they have converts even? Right? We don't even, we apparently, again, I, 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 what, the little bit that I saw indicated that they didn't really have rules of conversion. So, so did they accept the Israeli Jews as whole Jews? The Israeli Jews as whole Jews, meaning all the Israeli Jews? Uh, did they 
converted Jews or other Jews? Uh, the Jews who were already there in Israel. Yeah. Well, those aren't converts, necess- I would assume. But, but to them. To them. to them, yeah. So my, 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 the short answer is yes. They, I mean, they're kind of forced to almost. Uh, but as far as I know, they're, they're kind of... I, I've not seen literature, um, meaningful literature, uh, you know, with the exception of like... Uh, one or two like people with like a megaphone, uh, but but I, I don't know of any of their leadership or any real uh, push to say that um, you know again there's like conspiracy th- I don't know, conspiracy there's, there's a lot of theories about where European Jewry came from etc cetera, etc cetera, but um, I, again from from a, generally speaking I've not seen anything that that them again uh, large scale rejecting uh, the Jewishness of of other Jews yes uh, not that this is uh, definitive in, in uh, what is the DNA? I mean, ex post facto, we must have gone back and looked at this. As a- yeah, so it's not, you know... You know, the DNA could be different, meaning, you know, it's, it's, it'd be, if it's a different tribe and we're claiming to come from Yehuda or whatever it is, so, uh, you know, the fact that it's a, a different DNA is not necessarily, you know, going to be, well, how indicative is it? Interestingly, you know, we as Ashkenazic Jews, uh, we trace our mother through the mitochondrial Mm-hmm. The mitochondrial DNA in most Ashkenazi Jews is mostly Europe, Eastern European. Right. So it's a very interesting thing. Here, we're in a sort of a, who are we to be throwing stones? You see, it's an interesting Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Yeah, yeah, 100%. 100%. I mean, those crusades, I mean, again, we are all, you know, many of us are pretty pale. Let's, you know, <laughs> we're, we weren't born that way. Uh, you know, our, fa- our ancestors were not that color. Yes. If a true convert is a true convert, through and through. If they were to go, if, oh, you're saying what is the process of true conversion? Well, when he says true, as opposed to... Gir is, we just, we go through a very quick process. Whereas true conversion, we go through, what, you know, whatever the regular process would be for true conversion, fill in the blank, it's a whole discussion to itself. Uh, but whatever the process would be, we would put them through the same process of, of, of learning everything fully. And, you know, if it's Gir Lechumra, then whether you're fully observed, you can just say, yeah, I accept. It's, it's, you don't need as much of a commitment. You don't need as much knowledge. What we typically uh, expect of converts nowadays and maybe historically, whatever, but is, is a much more thorough process without getting details because there, there are varying opinions of what, what's needed. Yes? The simplest thing, did they have a Yes. The, the conversion was, uh, sorry, no, circumcision no, no, in, was, in, in Ethiopia. I believe so. I believe so. So this is, a, yeah, this is why it's an uh, extra piece. Okay. So the more difficult question, so the simple question is, I mean, again, it's not really a simple question. Obviously, it's tremendous ramifications. I'm being a little facetious. But basically, if, if you know, the simpler question is, okay, are they Jews or are they not Jews? What's much more difficult is, uh, much more thorny, is a question of mamzerut. Of, of, there's a halacha that let's say you have someone who is married. And then they, um, let's say you have someone who's, who's properly married. And then they did not get a get. They did not get a halachic divorce. And they marry someone else. Okay? So you have this woman who is married, and then she leaves her first marriage, and she marries someone else. Okay? They got a civil divorce. They didn't get a divorce, whatever. They didn't get a halachic get. Marry someone else and has a child with that second person. What is the status of the child? A mamzer. And what that child, and halachically, that child is not allowed to marry anyone else. And that child's children, if that child does marry someone else, their children are mamzerim. And their children are mamzerim. So it's, it's, it's a really challenging thing. So here's the problem. The problem is that in the East communities... There's no record of Gittin. They did not have divorce documents. It didn't exist. Okay? So the Radvaz already, 16th century, asked this question. He says, okay, they're Jews, but can they marry? One of, he has two questions, two Shiloh, two Chuvas about, about this community. He says, can they, can they marry, uh, you know, our fellow Jews? And the, and the answer that he gives, um, he says, you know, he says, maybe they're Ramzerim. So he says like this. He says, um, 
he says, he argues that since they didn't really keep the Torah, or at least the oral Torah, they are not valid witnesses. And therefore, although they had a wedding ceremony with witnesses, different than ours, but they had a wedding ceremony with witnesses, their witnesses are not valid. And therefore, they're never really married. And therefore, they don't need to be divorced. Right? Basically, again, if you never were married, if you had, if, if, if the first was just a, a, a union, it was a union, whatever, they were together, but they weren't married, then there's no issue of not being divorced. Right? Um, and therefore, he says there's no issue. The challenge is, he writes about this in two places. In another place, he describes them as what is called as a Tinok Shanishba, as we saw earlier. A Tinok Shanishba, their status as a witness, is a little bit more questionable, a little bit more complicated. And according to many, it's seen as a valid witness uh, for the wedding. And if you bring it back to, therefore, they'd be valid witnesses on the wedding. And again, if you don't have a divorce, we're back to this question of, are they, uh, can their children get married or not? Uh, are they mamzerim or not? Um, Ravavad Yosef um, um, as reported by, by Rav Aviner, uh, says it's not an issue. He, Rav Yosef uh, Paskin, that, they're, that they're, they're allowed to marry into, he said even you're allowed to marry to Kohen, uh, bottom line, you know, which means, whatever, the whole discussion basically says like full-fledged Jews, we don't consider their conversion to be a real conversion because they're already Jews, and we don't assume that they're a mamzer, and we don't assume that there are any issues. He doesn't, you know, why is a longer discussion we're kind of running out of time, and I feel bad holding you all back. Um, and so, again, Rav Yosef says that it's not an issue. Ramosha Feinstein says it's also not an issue. Why does he say it's not an issue? Because they're not Jews. So they go through proper conversion, right? The whole notion of mamzerus, uh, this whole notion is only relevant to Jews. If a non-Jew who comes from a family who is someone who's married out of wedlock and then they convert, halachically, there's no issue. We don't treat that as an issue. It's only a Jew who has this type of union. That's when you have mamzerus. And therefore, whichever way you look at it, again, there are, and I, want to, I don't have them listed over here, there are postkim who question this. Um, you know, Rav, I, I should mention it briefly. Why does Ravad Yosef say there's no issue? So some suggest it's based on what is known as a sveik sveika. Okay, here's, we're going to learn a little bit of deeper Talmud for two seconds. Um, there's a notion called a doubt. A doubt typically in, in Jewish law very often is not enough. Okay, and for, certainly for biblical laws, if you have a doubt, like, uh, you know, if, if, if uh, this food was served and Zev said, you know, I'm not sure if this food is kosher or not kosher, right? I won't be allowed to eat it. It could potentially, could potentially be eating something which is biblically prohibited, okay? But if you have what is called a sveika, sveika, a doubt built into another doubt, then already it's as if there's no doubt. So what is the doubt built into a doubt, what is known as a sveika, sveika? So he says, first of all, um, maybe they are non-Jews. In other words, maybe they're intermarried. He says, on the one hand, he holds their Jews. But we know that there were non-Jews who kind of joined them at different times. So maybe this person that you want to marry is actually a non-Jew. Maybe the mother over here is a non-Jew. And even if you want to say it was a Jew, and, 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 and then you have the second suffix of the fact that maybe this person's parents never got divorced, right? Divorce certainly wasn't as common back in the day and maybe not in these communities. So there's two doubts. Now, this is not the best sveik sveika, not the time to get into it. This is not your classic sveik sveika. Usually it's a doubt built into a doubt. This is two independent doubts, and one of the doubts is not so strong. Keep in mind, how many people actually joined their ranks? Very few. Uh, we know that, again, it was popular for a little while, but, but they, were, they were outcasts of the community, right? It wasn't like they had like, a tremendous amount of people intermarrying into Ethiopian uh, Jewry. Like, and, and it, just, it wasn't happening. They were, they were outcasts for so much of history. Um, so it's not the strongest sveika sveika, and therefore people take issue with this. And there are many who say, we're really stuck because they might be Jewish and they might be mamzerim, and therefore there are those who caution about marrying them again. Uh, you know, you have a Ravadia, you have a Moshe to rely upon, and, and many do, but it's worth noting that this is a bit of a debate. Okay. Uh, we're really, uh, went a little longer than I probably, you have such a 
good audience. Okay. Uh, okay. So I want to finish with three points. Three points, and that is the first is something from Ramosha Feinstein's um, um, uh, um, response that he writes. It's a letter that he wrote to his son, which again was published publicly. Uh, but Ramosha basically, you know, th- this whole discussion. Um, was a very charged discussion about how to treat the status of these people. You know, um, maybe some of you can remember you know, the first time you're, you're, you're exposed to the idea, um, you know, the, of, of the notion of there are black Jews, right? It was, it, was a, it, was a, it was a strange thing for many people. Again, historically, I mean, historically, I mean, a few decades ago. It was a very strange thing. And so Moshe writes in his Chuba, a beautiful thing. He says, and I suffer great anguish because of, I've heard that there are those in Israel who are not drawing them close in spiritual matters and are causing, God forbid, that they might be lost from Judaism. And it seems to me that these people are behaving so only because the color of the Falasha's skin is black. It is obvious that one must draw them close, not only because they are no worse than the rest of the Jews, and because there's no distinction in practical application of the law because they're black. In other words, he's calling out the Jewish community, saying they're treating them differently because they're skin. He says, what is that? He says, that's not a Jewish thing. There's no halachic difference between someone who is white, brown, black, etc. And therefore, he says, this is crazy. He says, you know, again, Ramosha says, I don't believe they're Jewish from a halachic standpoint. He says, still, you have to be nice, kind to them. But he says, I, I believe that there's a layer over here, and he was certainly correct. There was a racist layer over here of people saying, we don't want them in our land, right? Keep in mind, especially early state of Israel, where they were, forget, you know, a, a black Jew. They didn't want Eastern European Jews. They wanted only the sophisticated elites, whatever, you know. So the notion that they were rejecting what, the, what they would call the primitive people coming from some of these countries is, was, was not a, uh, and I say that in quotations for those listening, uh, but basically is, uh, you know, is, is yeah, they, 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 there was certainly an element of racism. And Ramosha says, well, what is this in, in Jewish law and Jew, Jewish practice? The notion of treating someone differently because of the color of skin has no halakhic basis. It's completely wrong. He goes on to say, but if they're, if they're really converts, we have an extra obligation to love them more, not less, not treating them differently. We have an obligation to go and love them more than a fellow Jew. Right? Whatever, you, whatever amount you love your fellow, you're, you're a person who's a regular, if this person's a convert, which he believes they are, if they join Jewish ranks, we have an obligation to love them even more than other people, right? So that's just one, uh, you know, fascinating piece that comes out of this whole um, discussion. The other piece, which I think is, is, is so important uh, and worth reflecting upon, is the notion of kibbutz galios, um, the idea of the gathering of the exiles. Rabbi Ben Nun wrote an entire book about this topic, and in the introduction he writes, he says, I see in the gathering of the exiles the greatest miracle in all of human history. Because there's no other nation that has survived thousands of years after it was exiled from its country and returned to its land. Thus, this is the ultimate proof of the truth of Torah and prophecy and for God's existence among us. There's no need for any other evidence for it is staring us in the face of the prophet. Yeshai exclaims, for they will see with their own eyes the Lord's return to Zion. And what Torah tells us over and over again, especially in the book of Isaiah and the book of Yeshaya, how all the Jews will eventually start coming back to the land of Israel. Walk through the streets of Israel. It is the most beautiful mosaic possible, right? It's, 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 uh, it's remarkable, right? All these people from so many different places, so many different colors, so many different cultures, and, and coming back to the land of Israel. This is really, you know, what we're experiencing in our time, and we know it intellectually, and it's worth moments like this to reflect on it, at least to feel it a little bit emotionally. We are living through such wondrous times. Suffolk, maybe they are Jewish, maybe they're not Jewish, but, but, but this notion of people coming from all over the world, flocking back to the land of Israel is a messianic or a pre-messianic vision and something that we should celebrate. This idea of having so many different Jewish communities together is, is something that, that we can't allow ourselves to take for granted. It's something we have to appreciate and, and stop and pause and whenever we have a topic like this to appreciate the, 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 the era that we live in um, that, that's worth, worth reflecting upon. Okay, so that, that's point number two that I took out of it. And the last point is a somewhat of a well-known story 
Uh, this is the first time I found the story somewhat sourced, um, and uh, we'll read it together. Following Operation Moses, okay, that was the early, one of the earlier um, operations of freeing, of, of bringing Ethiopian Jews to, to Israel. The Kasim, the spiritual leaders of the community, were taken on a tour of Jerusalem, the city of their dreams. The last stop of the day was at the Western Wall Plaza. One of the Kasim lifted his hand and asked, where's Jerusalem? Yaakov from the Jewish agency answered, we've been in Jerusalem all day long, and now we're at the Western Wall. The Kes continued, where's the temple? Yaakov pointed to the Temple Mount and said, this is where the temple used to be. And the Kesem fell on their face to the pavement of the plaza and began to weep like children. Uh, you know, I try to think about this every Tisha B'av, if I can. And, you know, on the one hand, on the one hand, this community, if we were to believe that they are really from Jewish sources, you know, it's, uh, it's worth noting, you know, there, there was a lot of, uh, you know, Jewish practices were, were spread throughout the Roman Empire um, and throughout the entire region, especially around the time of the destruction of the Second Temple. It's possible they're not Jews, but certainly if we assume that they are Jews and they lost. But as, as, as many of the Ravad Yosef and the Radvaz assume, they were Jews and they lost so much. And on the one hand, there was so much that they didn't hold on to and that we are, so to speak, teaching them. And at the same time, we need to learn this incredible lesson from them. The fact that they held on. You know, for us, Tisha B'av, it's a hard day. It's a hard day. You know, we have to fill it with like movies that have like nothing to do with Tisha B'Av, right? Because, ah, oh, we just, I don't know, we're finding it, filling it in. For them, like we could and should need to take like a page from their emotional book and to appreciate the fact that for them, the loss of Eretz Yisrael, the loss of, not of Eretz Yisrael, the loss of the base of Migdash is a reality. That's something that we need, all of us need to learn from their community that they held on to this. This was their dream. They always dreamed of coming back and seeing the base of Migdash. And when they heard that it was destroyed for them to drop down and cry like that, halavai, halavai, we should be able to live up to that, to be able to learn from them and take from their ways and to be able to, to mourn Yushalayim uh, like this community. And uh, okay, I thank you for, for, for participating. I hope we learned something new and uh, have a wonderful day.